Netflix is going unwoke. Let's pray that America's pastors can do the same. There's a baby formula crisis. There's a crime crisis. Uh, there's a Ukraine war that you, American taxpayer, are paying for. Roe v. Wade is coming to an end. And suspiciously, in light of all of these events, there's an enormous amount of silence from America's pulpits. That's because there's a serious crisis of confidence in the scriptures in America's pulpits. And as America's pulpits go, so does the culture. We need to pray for our pastors more than ever before. And we're going to finish off the episode with a look at finding the goodness of God in the face of another mass shooting. And there is goodness to be found in the midst of the devil's evil. That and more tonight on your favorite night of the week, The Deep End on Tim Hedge Live. Welcome in, everybody. 7.30 Tuesday night, and I am so glad to be here. I'm your somewhat humble host. Might need to be a little bit more humble. My name is Tim Hatch, and I invite you to like, subscribe, and click that notification bell so that you're always notified on your smart device whenever we go live. And it is episode 27 of season 5 on the Deep End. Can you believe it? Episode 27 of season 5. So we're going to get right into Deep End News. Deep End News. News and views that don't make us news. So this is good. On the heels of this tragic massacre in Buffalo, President Biden is doing the right thing and visiting the area where 10 innocents were fatally shot in what appears to be a racially motivated mass shooting at a grocery store in a predominantly black neighborhood. Now, the shooter was already on the FBI watch list, and I don't understand why these things keep happening. We keep hearing this on the FBI watch list, mass shooting results. Why can't they preemptively stop these things? I don't know. Evidently, too, some other details have been kind of seeping out since the attack. The shooter was addicted to 4chan and got addicted to 4chan during the lockdown portion of the COVID pandemic. He claimed he was so utterly bored that he ended up going down the rabbit hole of 4chan and learning extremist views that led to his violent tendencies and ultimately this horrific atrocity. And I read parts of his supposed manifesto. It's available online. You got to search for it, but you can find it. It's kind of full of holes, to be honest with you. It has serious questions. Makes me doubt it was written by actually the shooter. And and the number one question is because in the manifesto, he asks questions of himself, like he interviews himself. And one of the questions that he asks of himself is the following question. Is there a particular person that radicalized you the most? And I just think about the fact, he goes on to answer that it was someone named Brenton Harrison Tarrant. I don't know who that person is, but the question itself is odd. Like a radicalized person does not usually refer to themselves as radicalized, right? Am I, am I right? Like if you're in the cult, you don't call it a cult. It's just fishy. <laughs> it's just fishy, as with all the news lately. Anyway, back to Biden, he did decide to go to Buffalo and visit the victims areas, the victim area, uh, victim area, um, you will remember, of course, that this is a change of course, because back before December, uh, back in November, when the Waukesha massacre happened and a, a domestic terrorist drove through a Christmas parade and killed six innocent people, um, that Biden's press secretary said that sending the president to the community, quote, requires a lot of assets, so he wouldn't be visiting that tragedy. Nice change of course here. Good for him not playing politics at all. Um, You have to look at both events and ask yourself, why go to one and not the other? Like, maybe the problem is that in one particular instance, the person perpetrating the crime was not white. But in this instance, the person was white. 
And maybe in one particular instance, the person was not using a gun. And in this instance, the person was using a gun. And so maybe the politics of Joe Biden are coming into play here or at least being exposed here for the uh, tragedies that he does see are worth the assets of the White House. Of course, you can hear my sarcasm, sarcasm, and uh, if you need me to spell it out for you, I just did. <laughs> just know there's only one kind of tragedy that this president evidently cares about. The rest are too much strain on his White House staff. Nice change of course. Good for you, President Biden. Now, speaking of changing courses, I bring you to Netflix. Netflix decided to change course. The company that was all about being woke has had enough of playing to the woke crowd. You know, the hashtag get woke, go broke at Netflix is finding out and it has seen its stock price plummet to one fourth its value from its all time high in just a relative matter of months. They also aren't gaining subscribers like they used to before. And America's favorite God money is ultimately in charge of these corporations. Never forget that, friend, because we are just a couple of weeks away from Pride Month. And if you think it's about their support for LGBTQ people, it is not. It is about money. How can they leverage that, 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 that Pride Month to make more money for themselves? Now, of course, we have talked about the fact that Dave Chappelle has been under fire from the transgender community and Netflix had to figure out how are they going to navigate those waters. And, and then this article came out this week from Business Insider, quote, Netflix tells employees they can quit. If they don't want to work on content, they disagree with according to a new company culture guideline. Wow, this is incredible, friends. But please, please, please do not take this as some kind of strong moral stand that Netflix is taking. No, Netflix has watched their stock price dive, their subscriber base dive, and they have decided to bow at the altar of the almighty dollar. So the article goes on, Netflix updated its company culture guidelines for the first time since 2017 to include a, quote, artistic expression section. The memo says Netflix may not be the best place for employees who cannot work on content they disagree with. The streamer is looking to rebound from a historic drop in subscribers and sudden layoffs. Netflix updated its company culture guidelines again for the first time since 2017. Then it says this, not everyone will like or agree, or agree with everything on our service, the memo says. We let viewers decide what's appropriate for them versus having Netflix censor specific artists or voices. And then this last line, which is great. Depending on your role, you may need to work on titles you perceive to be harmful. And by harmful, they mean triggering, <laughs> which is actually not causing harm. It's just kind of like supposed mental harm. And then it finally says, if you, uh, if you find it hard to support our content breath, Netflix may not be the place for you to work. Wow. I mean, I guess we'll take it. But you know what's hilarious about this news? That 30 years ago, this memo would have been targeted at Christians who couldn't work at a company producing questionable content. Now it's targeted at the woke legalists. Like Christians used to be the legalistic ones, right? Christians used to be the ones who would get triggered by sex scenes and pro prolific vi violence, you know, on, on the screen and they would complain and they would boycott and they would talk about how awful the company was. Now we see it for what it is. Wokeism is a religion. And we have talked about this before with Vodi Bakum's book, Fault Lines, and how wokeism or, you know, the, this new movement of uh, anti-racism is, is really just another version of a man-made religion where you have got to follow the law and the letter of the law and nothing's ever good enough and you have to you know atone for your sins and there are works righteousness things that you must follow in order to be accepted and on and on and on it goes wokeism my friends is 
a religion. And it's a religion that is seemingly losing its savor because people are done with it. They're sick of it. And it makes me turn my attention to the church. Makes me turn my attention to the church. Unfortunately, the church is usually on the last half of the crest of a cultural wave. And I watched the church get on board, a lot of the church, a good portion of it, get on board with wokeism. And it was really frustrating to see. It was really like, enough is enough. I mean, pastors and especially pop culture pastors were bending over backwards to appease the woke scolds with, you know, their diatribes about anti-racism or uh, they're fighting for social justice or how they were for equity. And, and, and now that they watch, and I wonder who, what these pastors can do, now as they watch wokeism, the religion of wokeism collapse because at the end of the day, it doesn't make money for corporate America. What are the pastors going to do? Will they wake up to the reality that wokeism is a cult and they need to disavow it and actually challenge it? Or will they just stay woke because they tend to ride the last crest of the cultural wave in every generation? Like, this is the problem with the church. This is a problem with the church. And it's not a problem with you, the, the church goers. It's a problem with the church pastors. And it brings me to a nice diatribe that I'd like to go on in the deep end commentary. Okay, so I bring your attention to this article from thechristianpost.com. Study finds 37% of pastors have a biblical worldview. Spiritual awakening needed in our pulpits. Friends, think about that number. 37% of pastors have a biblical worldview. That means that 37% of pastors believe that this book is actually true. So what does that mean? That also means six out of 10 pastors don't have a biblical worldview. The article says a new study from the Cultural Research Center of Arizona Christian University has found, again, 37% of Christian pastors have a biblical worldview, demonstrating that a spiritual awakening is just as desperately needed in our pulpits as in the pews. The article goes on and says a nationwide study of about 1,000 Christian pastors found that just slightly more than a third, 37%, hold a biblical worldview. The the majority, 62%, possess a hybrid worldview known as syncretism. Now, syncretism is nothing new. What is syncretism? It means you take some of the Bible and you take some of culture and you syncretize, you you blend them, you bring them together. So where I can fit the Bible into culture, that's where I'm going to do. Now, we're doing this in large scale in the evangelical church with women pastors, even though it is not biblical, but it is very cultural. So let's syncretize. Let's find texts in the passage that could potentially give us the reasonable argument to create women pastors and so on and so forth. And I just think about how many other areas, there's a whole host of Christian ministries that are uh, pro-choice. There's a whole host of Christian leaders who are uh, pro-gay marriage and uh, even pro-transgenderism. And we're seeing this. We're seeing the exposure of what Jesus talked about in Matthew 25 regarding the end times church, which is that 50%, if you look at the if you look at the parable of the 10 virgins, 50%, five of them were foolish, five of them were wise, and the foolish ones were not ready for Jesus' return because I believe they had become syncretized to the culture around them. Anyway, back to the article, it says this, the study 
showed that 41% of senior pastors, uh, 28% of associate pastors have a biblical worldview. Uh, only 13% of teaching pastors. What does that say about all the teaching pastors that we want to create? <laughs> what is a teaching pastor as opposed to a regular pastor? A teaching pastor is somebody who just basically preaches and does very little else. And then 12% of the children's pastors and youth pastors have a biblical worldview. And that one right there is the most alarming. The, the guys teaching your children in churches, only about 12 of them, 12% of them have a biblical worldview. I think if anybody needs to have a biblical, world, biblical worldview, it is those who are teaching the very population that Jesus says represents the kingdom of God. That is children. The lowest level of biblical worldview is among executive pastors. And I would like to say, watch out, Pastor Shane, <laughs> in my church, only 4% of them holding a consistently biblical worldview. This is shocking and alarming because of something that I'm going to get to in just a moment. But let me continue with the article because we want to just unpack it for a second. This says that the research included 54 worldview-based questions. And again, 47% of the pastors have that biblical worldview regarding family, the value of life. That would be like abortion issues or end-of-life issues. 40% concerning issues related to God, creation, history. That is just fundamental ideas on doctrine regarding the world and our place in it. 43% in relation to personal faith practices. Should we evangelize? Should we pray? Should we, you know, raise our kids in the faith? 43% when it comes to the matters of sin, salvation, and one's relationship to God. 40% pertaining to human character and human nature. No wonder why we're such jerks today. And 40% when it comes to the measures of lifestyle, personal behavior, and relationships. That's where you talk about homosexuality or traditional marriage and uh, transgenderism or abortion and all those kind of social hot button issues. And so you see right there that I believe, and I believe this, as goes the pulpit, so goes the church, and so goes the country. As goes the pulpit, so goes the church, and therefore so goes the country. Because Jesus said in Matthew 5 that the church, the church was the salt of the earth. And if the church, if the salt loses its saltiness, it is worthless. It is to be cast out and trampled on foot, underfoot by men. Could that be the American church right now? I believe it is well on its way. And I think about these pastors, because I am a pastor. And I think about six out of six of ten of my brothers in senior leadership, like I am, not holding to the Bible. How does that happen? I want to unpack. That's what the deep end commentary is for. I want to unpack why. Here's why I think this is the case. Number one, pastors do not realize the battle that they face. Right? Ephesians chapter six, verse twelve. Are we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the powers, principalities, rulers, dark forces in this heavenly realm. Like we have got a battle on our hands, fellow pastors and people of God in churches being led by pastors. Do you understand that this is not a social club? This is not just a gathering of people who want to maybe get to heaven in case it's all very true. No, there is a battle at, at, at in, in, in action right now for the souls of men, women, and most importantly, young people. And the devil is not going to fight that battle lightly. And I fear for this in the church, in the pulpits of America, that too many pastors just take the battle lightly. They want to, you know, encourage people. They want to build up people. They want to build a big church or have a big crowd. And they don't remember that this thing is a fight. Looking at Paul the Apostle fighting every single step of the way to establish the church, to build the church, to write back to those churches. The epistles of the New Testament are him dealing with all the challenges in the church. And my friends, if you are part of a church with challenges, don't you understand that the reason for those challenges is not because the church is flawed, but that the church 
is in war, in spiritual war. Like so many people judge the church and expect it to be like a, a national park instead of what it really is. It, it, it is a battle site. It is a, it is a battlefield minefields and attacking armies in the spiritual realm and in the physical realm. And I think that a lot of times pastors just give up the fight in the spiritual realm because they don't realize that it's there. Number two, pastors, unfortunately, today want to be motivational speakers and not biblical teachers. They, 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 want, to, they want to motivate people. They want to encourage. Like I said, they want to encourage. I just want to encourage. Ask yourself this if your pastor gets up there and says this on Sunday. Well, I just want to encourage you with a few things today. Really? Like, that's not all pastors are supposed to do. Pastors are also supposed to warn. Pastors are also supposed to correct. Pastors are also supposed to reprove. God's people. I bring you to 2 Timothy 3, 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Now think about two of those words, teaching and training. A lot of pastors are cool with that, but not a lot of pastors are cool with these two ones in the middle. Hard to correct people. Hard to reprove people. Because when you start to correct and reprove, people will start to kick you in the teeth. That is just the reality, my friend. And a good pastor teaches and edifies and encourages, but a good pastor also reproves and brings correction and challenges God's people to stop listening to the voices of the world and change their behavior and repent and turn to God on a regular basis. That is what a man of God must do. If your pastor doesn't offend you at certain points, can you honestly say he's leading you? Like if someone doesn't challenge you, is he leading you? He's not. He's he's just you know cooperating with you. And a pastor cannot cooperate. A shepherd cannot cooperate with sheep. A shepherd has to challenge sheep. A shepherd has to correct sheep. So I think that too many pastors want to be motivational speakers and not teachers. Number three, pastors typically have an unhealthy desire to please everyone. Now again, I'm a pastor. I'm speaking from I'm speaking from experience here. And, and when I was really young in the ministry, when I first got into pastoral work, I had this unhealthy assumption that I would preach God's word and people would love me. And it is not true. Sometimes you preach God's words and you God's word and you make hard decisions in the church and people will hate you. And we just went through these last two years and you add COVID and the very um, divisive political election, the national election that we just went through, and you add the BLM protests on the heels of George Floyd's death and, and then the anti-police riots and, and all and all those things just go, and then the, the January 6th riot and all these kind of like left and right issues going at each other and pastors were put in this no-win situation when they tried to please people. They, they tried to please everyone. Guys, look, you can't do it. And I have learned this the hard way that people will not always be pleased with what I say. But if I give myself to pleasing others, I'm fighting a losing battle. Paul says this in Galatians. He says, are we, are we now servants of you? Did we come to please you? He said, if I was trying to please you, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. Like pastors need to know this. And, and I've learned this, that sometimes I'm going to do something. People are going to say, you're an idiot. You're stupid. What's wrong? Or, or they're going to say, and I've had people say this about me. He's, he's stopped hearing from God and God's not really with them anymore. And he's kind of lost his, I mean, I've heard it all. I've heard that from friends. I've heard that from enemies. I've heard that from new acquaintances and longtime acquaintances. And it's just the reality of ministry. We serve a savior who was crucified. He was rejected. He was hated. He was put to death by the very people that he came to serve. 
pastors got to embrace the mindset of Christ that not everybody's going to like you and trying to make them like you is a fool's errand. Uh, let's see, number four, leading requires changing. And people resist change immensely, especially in the church. I mean, you change anything in the church, people freak out. I, if you're a pastor and you're listening to me, I got some tips for you. Here's how you change things in your church. Don't tell people you're going to change things. Just do it. <laughs> Just do it. You don't have to always say, hey, we're going to change things because change is a buzzword. Change and they hear change is like, change, change, change. What are you going to change? You're going to change. You're going to take away the pew that my grandmother donated to the church through 2,000 years ago? How dare you? Like, you know, and this is where we are in our country where people just resist change. Now, the culture changes and the, and I'm talking about the cultural language changes. And, and I believe that the church never changes the message, never manipulates the message, but you got to change the language with which you present it. So, you know, musical styles can change and, and even dress. And, and atmospheric styles can change. And even your building should change. Like your building should change with the times. And I think there's an end. It's coming to an end where, where people are attracted to big buildings and are looking for more, more small, intimate buildings. And, and so are our churches willing to make that change to speak a cultural language so that we can present Christ clearly without these walls that separate us from the hearer? But anyway, leading requires change. Not everybody likes it. And a lot of people change, uh, resist it immensely and a lot of pastors instead of changing they just cooperate with the status quo it's not good and then pastors number five are not in the scriptures themselves for personal growth this is a big one this is a huge one i have done a lot of research on this a lot of pastors do not read the bible except for their own personal ministry they just go to the bible to teach people what it says and they never go to the bible to let god's word teach them what it says and i think for myself one of the decisions that i made many, many years ago was every day, as best as I could, I was going to be in the scriptures for my own benefit. The first thing that I do when I wake up in the morning is I get on my phone, on my Bible app, and I check out verse of the day or, you know, where I left off reading someday. And I, I wanted, I posted this question on my Twitter page, uh, at Tim Hatch live. And I see you can follow right there, uh, at Tim Hatch live that the most important question that you can answer right now is the question of what did, I, what did I read in the Bible recently and what did it say to me? And a lot of pastors are so in the work of, you know, teaching other people the Bible, they don't let themselves grow in the Bible. And then lastly, this is one, two, three, four, five, six. Pastors lack true friends. And so they find value in meaningless things like nickels and noses. And that nickels and noses terms means that pastors judge themselves by how many, how much money was given that week and how many people were in the seats. Nickels and noses, Right. And so they lack true friends. I, I, I read statistics about this, that pastors can name zero close friends. The predominant number of pastors can name zero close friends. I thank God that that's not the case for me. And sometimes pastors see other pastors as competition and not partners. And so they don't even create friends with other pastors. And I remember when I started my church way back in 2004, and I, I said, the first thing I'm going to do is going get, get, to get to know the other pastors of the community. And, and to this day, we have a, 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 a weekly breakfast where we get together and hang out because pastors need friends. And too many of them, because they don't have close friends, they find their value system. They find their, 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 this, this superficial friendship of, of, of money and attendance. Now, I've just presented you the bad reason, reasoning behind all of these thoughts. This is my opinion again. Now, here's the deal. Let's shift gears. What should you, non-pastor, churchgoer, or church member, or church, you know, serve team member, whatever you are, what should you do? Uh, because this is bad news, right? And you do want a pastor. You're like, hey, 
I need, I need a family of God. I need a pastor. This is bad. Like, how do I know if this pastor is one of the 37% or is he, or is he in that six in 10 number? And he doesn't have a biblical worldview because listen, your family is at stake. Your children's at stake. Your, your future's at stake. And you do not want a man of God or a person who claims to be a man of God, not leading you in the things of God, right? You want a man who's under the authority of Jesus Christ and the word of God and is going to open the scriptures and teach them to you. So I, get, I want to give you some advice on what you should do to find the right pastor. Number one, look at the pastor's life and family. Look at his life. Uh, I, I give you Titus 1, 6. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. That, by the way, is a qualifying verse for pastors. So what has he got? He's got a wife. He's got children who are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. In other words, can he rule his household well and do his children follow in the faith now when they grow up and they become adults they gotta make their own decision but as they are children right as they are in the house do they love the lord do they follow the lord right so this is something that you need to look for in a pastor's life his family how does he lead his own wife okay number two consider the pastor's loyalty this is a serious pen uh, epidemic in in uh, evangelicalism. Here's what pastors are really keen on doing: they hook up with a headhunting organization. There's many of them out there, and then they go from church to church trying to find the church that will make them the most notoriety. Instead of staying with one assembly, instead of staying with one p- church, and then you know building that church up and faithful through the ups and downs, the ins, the outs, the bad seasons, the good seasons, because everyone's going to have those. But what happens now today is, and this is a big, this is a big epidemic in churches that pastors will lead their churches to these huge building campaigns, take out a lot of money to build these huge buildings as a resume for themselves, only to look for another location to pastor based on the resume of that, that huge building that he built for some other church. And what, what it really is, is he's just labeled, labeled, Uh, He's just laden his congregation with a ton of debt for his own glorification. Like this, that's not good. Look at the pastor's loyalty. I think about Paul the Apostle, uh, Acts chapter 20. He says, "When when I was living among you, right? You saw how I lived. You watched. I served with humility, tears, trials. No matter what happened, I was there. I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you in public and from house to house. In other words, I was there. And I can say in my own life, I have stayed with one church since 1998. I mean, it's not not for lack of thinking. There might be better pastors out there, but the Lord was kind enough to make sure that I stayed. And I thank God that I stayed. And there is a value to staying. I mean, we have planted locations in other parts of the country and parts of the world, and I'm happy to oversee them. And I travel all over the place. And that's a wonderful opportunity that I have. It's not afforded to every pastor. I get it, but I love what I do. But one church, one church for 24 years. There's something to be said for that. Loyalty. The word loyalty in the, in the Hebrews, chesed, it is the word that most commonly refers to God's character. He is loyal. He is faithful. He sticks 
it out, right? That's what you want to look for in a pastor. Then what else should you do? This is a big one and an easy one. Pray for him and his family. Like, can you pray for your pastor? And and here's the deal. Before you criticize him, have you prayed for him? Before you question him, have you prayed for him? Before you listen to the chitter chatter from malcontented uh, former members of his church, ask yourself the question, have you prayed for the man? Because it's not easy. It's a hard job. And this is why Paul, Paul was asking people all the time, pray for me. First Thessalonians 5.25, brothers, pray for us. He says in Hebrews, well, I don't know if this is Paul. There's questions about if it was Paul who wrote Hebrews, but the Hebrews writer says in Hebrews 13.18, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. Then back to Paul in Colossians 4, verse 3, he says, at the same time, pray also for us, who? Your leaders, your, your spiritual leaders, that God may open a door for us for the word to declare the mystery of Christ and account of which I am in prison. Pray that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. And I would always say to people who ask, what can I pray for you, pastor? I always give them this verse right here. I always give them Colossians 4, 3 to 4. Please pray that I will declare God's word clearly. I don't need more money. I don't need more notoriety. I don't need a bigger church. I need to make God's word clear because if I make God's word clear, people will get saved. People will grow in Christ. People will get free of their addictions. People will get in relationship with other Christians and the built, the church will fellowship and grow because healthy things always grow. And it's my job to keep the church healthy by feeding them the pure, unadulterated, word of God. You want to pray for me? Pray for me right now that I will make God's word clear. Now God will open the door for me to continue to do that. Then let's go on to number four. What should you do when you think about this horrible news about 37% of pastors having a biblical word for you? Trust God. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Four. Support through the misunderstanding. So, you know, the pastor's going to challenge you. Pastor's going to change something in the church you don't like. Can you trust him? Can you trust him based on Ephesians 4.11, based on Hebrews 13, to obey your leaders, to submit to them, to make their work a joy and not a grief? Like, can you trust that the pastor, hear, hear this real clearly, can you trust that the pastor might know something that you don't know? You know, the pastor makes a big decision and you're like, I can't believe that he did that. I mean, who does he think he is? Well, maybe, just maybe, he sees something that you don't see. You know how you're spending, listen to me, churchgoer, just can you hear me out here? You probably spend what, an hour and a half thinking about the church per week? I am speaking from experience and I know it, that pastors think about the church 90 to 100 hours a week. It's on our mind all the time. In fact, most pastors are workaholics or thinkaholics. They are always thinking, thinking, thinking. And I will tell you this, as God is my witness, sometimes we question our decisions. A lot of times we're thinking about what we did wrong. A lot of times we're questioning whether we should do what we're about to do. I mean, there's a lot of hard decisions because you're dealing with people. You're dealing with people's hearts. And it's always hard to deal with people's hearts in that sense. But can you do this big favor for him? Can you support him even if you don't understand him? I'm telling you, try it. It might go well for you. And then number five, and this is the last one, trust that God has given him to you. Again, back to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, that, that the Bible says that, that when Jesus Christ ascended, he gave gifts to men, and those gifts were pastor, prophet, apostle, teacher, evangelist, that the pastor is in the ascended Christ gift ministry set, and it is someone that Christ 
himself has decided you need in your life. And so I think if we did those things, uh, the health of our pastoral ministry in this country would be so much better. I am not blaming the church for this, this stat right here. I am not blaming the church. Pastors have got to take accountability. They've got to take responsibility for their own growth, development, and confidence in the Word of God. And too many pastors desiring to be people pleasers and tickle people's ears and make friends with the sheep and follow them instead of lead them just need to buck up, man up, and become mighty men of God, full of the Holy Spirit and confident in what this Word says. It's not always going to be easy. But I'll tell you something, after 24 years of being involved in this fight, it's a heck of a battle. And there are some amazing points. There are some amazing moments to pastoral ministry. I'll tell you, I remember, quick story, when I was first in ministry and I had just started pastoring a church for the first time in my life, I was 28 years old. I went to this big conference of pastors and, you know, pastors talking to pastors during the, you know, intermediary breaks and everything. And I ran into this guy who had been in the pastoral ministry for 25 years. He was in the kind of like same area of the country that I was in. And I asked him how it was going. And then he asked me how it was going. And I was enjoying myself really. And I remember I said to this longtime pastor, I said, man, I'm having a lot of fun. And I'll never forget his face completely changed. And he looked at me and he said, fun. Talk to me in 20 years and tell me if it's still fun. Well, here I am 24 years later, and it hasn't been easy. And there have been some serious tears shed and some serious wounds licked over the course of my life, personally and professionally. But I'm still having a lot of fun. I really am. I thank God every day I get to do this. I love this job. By the way, if you like how I do this job, would you give me a like on the video and a subscribe? How about that? How about that? Lean in right there. I, uh, I love what I do. I love this channel. I love building this channel. If you can support this channel any way you can, spread the word, share the content. Because I, I want to spread this voice farther than ever before because... There's a lack of true biblical pastors in the church. When I, when I talk about things in the pulpit, I shouldn't have people coming up to me saying, which happens on a regular basis, Pastor, thank you for saying that because no other pastor in this area says it. Like, I shouldn't, that shouldn't, but, but I've been getting that experience. But I've been calling out the nonsense in our culture, when I've been calling out wokeism from the pulpit, when I've been calling out the, 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 the manipulation of science during the COVID-19 pandemic, when, when I celebrate the end of Roe v. Wade publicly in my church, you know, and I only had a spattering of class because, again, a lot of Christians are still in the, in, you know, on the wrong side there. Um, I shouldn't have people coming up to me saying, you're the only one in the area that says this. Every pastor should be saying these. Every pastor should be preaching truth, regardless of whether or not people like it or agree with it. And yes, some of it's going to be political, and some of it's going to be social issues, and some of it's going to be things that are not necessarily exactly in the text. But the implications of this text guide us through the things that are not in this text. Do you understand? Anyway, I say all that to say this, the status of America is often the fruit of America's churches, and the fruit of America's churches is often the reality of the pastor, the fruit of the pastor. I'm asking you to support pastors who preach the truth and stand up to the lies of the age. Call out the nonsense that they see. Like, like for instance, you know, now, now back to the deep end, right? For a second, off the commentary. Some things that got me politicked. 
So I'm just kind of politic that, you know, baby formula is a serious problem, that nobody can find baby formula. But our governmental leaders are now about to send another $40 billion, which would bring the grand total to $53 billion to Ukraine. By the way, their president is a former celebrity who's made billions of dollars himself. And then our leaders like Nancy Pelosi there in the picture live in billion dollar mansions, million dollar, multi-million dollar mansions on the coastal areas of our country and then talk about climate change and this oceans rising all the time. And I saw this package of $40 billion and even Bill Maher is talking about how ridiculous this is. Where's the money going? And he found out that $900 million of that $40 billion, almost a billion dollars of that $40 billion is going to translators for the refugees who are going to come into this country. Okay, but $1 billion for translators? How much are they making? I went into the wrong field. (laughs) How many do we need? You know what I'm talking about? Like, is anybody checking the ledger? Anybody checking the itemization of this $40 billion? Or are we just like posting our little Ukraine flag emoticons and hanging our our Ukraine flags outside our business and home saying, yay, Ukraine, here's another $40 billion when their annual budget is only $6 billion. And you guys can't find baby formula. But guess what? At U.S. detention centers on the border, they're stocked full of baby formula like like this this article from zero hedge this had me thinking france germany and italy favor negotiations to end the ukraine war and the article starts in recent weeks the leaders of the three largest eu countries by population france germany and italy have all come out in favor of negotiations between kiev and moscow as a way to end the fighting in ukraine unlike president biden french president emmanuel macron german chancellor olaf scholz and italian prime minister mario draghi have all spoken with russian vladimir russian president vladimir putin since russia invaded ukraine but biden hasn't instead we're just fight we're just passing more money over to Ukraine so they can keep the war going. How about a negotiate? How about a peace talk? Remember when they skewered President Trump because he talked to the guy? As far as I know, under Trump's watch, Putin didn't invade anybody. Maybe there's something to this talking to these dictators. Maybe there's something to talking to these world crazy leaders and calming them down so they don't keep, you know, perpetuating violence in the name of nationalistic ambitions. Or consider the murder rate that has escalated enormously since 2019 as for the last two years, a lot of pastors got on the bandwagon of defunding the police. Pastors marched in BLM movements saying that the police were the problem. Well, we told the police they were the problem and they shrunk back and guess what happened? Murder went through the roof. We're at levels not seen since the mid-1990s. Bad move, America. Where are the pastors talking about this stuff? And then this op-ed from protestia.com. And I love a lot of the stuff on the site. Not all of it, but some of it. And here was the op-ed title. The silence from pastors over the death of Roe v. Wade is stunning. Where is the joy? And then a list of the pastors. Joel Osteen, Stephen Furtick, Craig Rochelle, Mark Batterson, Andy Stanley, Louis Giglio. I mean, on and on. Brian Houston, Judah Smith, Levi Lusco, Greg Laurie, John Hagee, Brad Parsley, T.D. Jakes, Kerry Job, Kerry Newhoff, Robert Morris. Uh, I mean, all these all these notable named pastors and on their Twitter pages and on their Facebook pages, silence about what is potentially the most positive Supreme Court decision in a hundred years. 
people who have been talking who should who should believe what this book says about being formed in the womb did you see my shirt today formed in the womb stitched together by almighty god jeremiah was known before he was in the womb paul says i was called before i was in my mother's womb where are the pastors rejoicing over this news do they not want to be unculturally cool do they want to be what hated for their views like are they afraid of offending the pagans like, you're not offending the pagans you're doing something wrong if you're not offending people who don't believe the bible you're not preaching the bible jesus offended and the people like to say oh jesus offended religious people yeah because those were the only people around in jesus's day the problem in jesus's day was not paganism it was religious posturing and 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 and, and fakery so he challenged that sin of his day but in our day, it's this abandoning of all moral guidance in the scriptures. And, and we have pastors unwilling to challenge it and unwilling to guide God's sheep through it. Or how about this news from Libs of TikTok once again, scoring a, a home run here with a drag queen being sent to a New York public school to come in and read with students. Like this is happening on a regular basis. So often that Libs of TikTok's Twitter feed is literally flooded with story after story of men pretending to be women going into our public institutions and teaching six-year-olds how to read. And in America's pulpits, what? Crickets. Silence. And I know this because when I do mention these things, I have people coming up to me after the service and saying, thank you. Thank you for saying that. I've been looking for a church where the pastor will actually say this stuff. That's why I do this YouTube show, The Deep End. I know that a lot of people, this is an acquired taste. I get it. I'm not going to, I'm never going to be a headline speaker for some church growth conference. I get it because I'm going to say things like this because God's sheep need guidance. They need someone to stand in the gap in the face of this cultural tide of wickedness and say, thus says the Lord, come out from among them and be separate. Don't have anything to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. Rather expose them, Ephesians chapter four, expose them. That's what Jesus did in the religious fakery of his day. That's what Paul did to the Corinthians who were who were relativists and were doing all kinds of sexual moral things. And they also did it to the legalists of Galatia and Galatians. It's what we must do as pastors. It's not popular. It's not loved by everyone. It doesn't make us cozy with celebrities like Oprah Winfrey and Dr. Phil, but it makes us faithful in the halls of heaven. It makes us true to our true shepherd who is going to hold us accountable for what we said to God's people. I think about Ezekiel chapter 22. When Ezekiel cries out to the people's leaders, he says, your leaders are like wolves who tear apart their victims. They actually destroy people's lives for money. And your prophets cover up for them. So, the, so, so 40 billion to Ukraine, where's that money going? A lot of it, I bet you, is going into the pockets of our leaders. It's called a global governmental money laundering scheme, friends. And the prophets, instead of calling them out, cover up for them. The pastors, the preachers, cover up for them by announcing false visions, making lying predictions. I have had it with pastors who are constantly talking about, your day is coming, your day is coming. Get ready. Here comes your season. Here comes your breakthrough. Like, really? 
I mean, all these, oh, the Lord told me. Oh, the Lord's speaking to me right now. Oh, the Lord's telling me. I mean, false visions, lying predictions, on and on and on and on it goes. And no one says anything. And it says they make, he says, they make, they say my message is from the sovereign Lord when the Lord hasn't spoken a single word to them. Even common people oppress the poor, rob the needy, deprive foreigners of justice. And look at this. Look at the heart of God here in verse 30. I looked for someone who might rebuild the wall of righteousness that guards the land. I searched for someone to stand in the gap in the wall so that I wouldn't have to destroy the land, but I found no one. So the judgment comes. I will now pour out my fury on them, consuming them with the fire of my anger. I'll heap on their heads the full penalty of all their sins. I, the sovereign Lord, have spoken. The status of America is often the fruit of America's churches, and the fruit of America's churches is the fruit of her pastors. We need pastors to stand up for God once again. Pray. Would you pray? Would you pray for your pastor? Pray for me. Pray for me that I won't stop doing this. Because every once in a while, there are little seeds of doubt come in. Take it easy. Lay off that stuff. You'll make more friends. Who cares if I have friends? Jesus is the friend that sticks closer than a brother. And if he's my friend, I'm good. Let's get to really good news. Really, really, really good. That's really good news. It's good. Okay, so I really love this news out of insider.com. Check this headline out. Women on TikTok say hookup culture will be absolutely decimated if Roe v. Wade is overturned. Woo! Yeah, like this is really, really good news. So, you know, um, there was a bunch of uh, TikTok posts uh, going all over the internet by women, young Gen Y girls, who expressed their emotions on the potentiality of Roe v. Wade being overturned. And I'm going to go full Palpatine here. I'm going to go full Palpatine, right? It is unavoidable. Yeah. So uh, this is, this is, let me see, who is this? Ray1iz writes on her TikTok page, to all men who don't care about the Roe v. Wade legislation, just know that if Roe v. Wade is overturned, heterosexual hookup culture will disintegrate. Why would, you, why would we, that's women, risk letting someone who runs on Hot Pockets and Jewel Pods father our children? Um, full Palpatine here. Good. I can. Yes, I can feel your anger. Another <laughs> another example, uh, this from Nikki Cox on TikTok. She says, since about 75% of men only care about sex and money, I hope they know that this Roe v. Wade decision could destroy hookup culture and leave them paying 18 years of child support. This isn't just a women, oh, an issue for women boys. And I love the little heart emoticon because that means she cares about everything. And I just want to say, again, full Palpatine here. Everything is proceeding as I have foreseen. Yeah, this is very good. And then one final, one final example, Molly Mo, Money Molosk and TikTok. She says this, in case you're a man who doesn't care about Roe v. Wade, just know that if abortion gets banned, hookup culture will be absolutely decimated. What, what woman would have mediocre sex with a drunk rando if he could potentially father their child? And I just want to say one more time. It is unavoidable. It is your destiny. Roe v. Wade ending is unavoidable. It is your destiny. And hookup culture ending. Hmm. Good. Good. 
But but here's the deal. What these young girls are exposing again is the soft underbelly of the pro-choice movement. I mean, they are literally proving that at the heart of it, abortion is not about the life of the mother or rape or incest or the health of the mother or the freedom of the mother or the equality of the mother. Nope. Abortion is about what it's always been about. One thing and one thing only. Consequence-free fornication. That's what they're basically saying. They're saying, if I have to bear this child, then I am not going to go fornicate with a bunch of strange men at drunken frat parties. Good. Like this, yes, like... Everything is proceeding as I have foreseen. Okay, yeah. Anyway, let's talk about ending hookup culture. What would happen if we ended Roe v. Wade and hookup culture is decimated? Well, number one, the dude will not be able to treat you as a sex object, ladies, and a willing partner in pursuit of temporary pleasure. That's a good thing. Number two, you will be much more careful about how much you drink at that frat house party, won't you? Like, yeah, you might get drunk and you might sleep with someone and have their baby. Mm, think twice about having two drinks. Number three, you would virtually eliminate your chance at contracting STD. That's a good thing. Or how about this one? Your standards will elevate and your, and your body will return to the sacred off-limit space that it was meant to be. Ladies, did you know that? Did you know that your body is a sacred space? Read the Song of Solomon. We'll get there in a moment. It talks about how sacred is the woman's garden. It's, it's her body. It's, it's meant for her husband and her husband alone. I mean, even mainstream news sources talk about how much harm is done in hookup culture. This is from an article in 2005. That's how old it is. On the consequence of casual sex. The article from the Seattle Times, it says, some therapists call it emotional anorexia or learning to exist without relationships, a potential result of poor parental bonding. And it talks about how the trend is for men to become more predatory in a hookup culture, not less. Like there's this stupid belief about addiction that if we just give them some of it, then it will alleviate the addiction. That breaks every law of addiction that we know. Like you don't get off of alcohol by giving little dabs of alcohol to an alcoholic. The more he consumes, the more he wants. The more a man gets free, unaccountable sex, the more he wants it. The more predatory he becomes. And hookup culture just exacerbates that problem in our society. Or how about this little article from Science Daily out of 2013. A new study in the Journal of Sex Research found higher levels of general anxiety, social anxiety, and depression among students who recently had casual sex. You know, I was talking about pastors getting a lot of flack from people when they preach the truth. Let me tell you one thing that I get a ton of flack over, a ton of flack over in my church is when I take on anxiety because, because everybody is so utterly convinced that anxiety is this unavoidable problem of their mental condition and has nothing to do with their choices and their beliefs and their lifestyle. And I'm always like, you know what? You can change your anxiety. You can take control of that. Change your lifestyle. Instead of going right to Instagram, pray. Instead of going right to Facebook, read the scriptures. Instead of avoiding church, deepen yourself into the church. Like do the things God asks you to do. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Right? I was glad. Gladness comes from going to the house of the Lord. But, right? but everybody wants to be a victim now. It's a culture of perpetual victimhood. So if I can just claim that this anxiety issue is some kind of mental medical disorder, then I can always claim this victim status and then I can be a perpetual victim and expect everybody else to you know, satiate my proclivities. Maybe it's because you're having unprotected casual sex. Maybe it's because you're living a life that should produce anxiety because what it really is, it's not anxiety, it's the over, overarching, the looming feeling of condemnation and judgment for sin. 
And God sent Jesus to set you free from that. Like God, God sent Jesus to set you free from that condemnation and that looming sense of judgment. That in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. You're freed from that. And now you can walk righteously because he doesn't just save you from the penalty of sin. He sets you free from the power of sin. And one day he will set us all free from the presence of sin. Or this table from the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, which we all turn to to the COVID pandemic. But what does it say about the negative impact of hookups? There was this inventory list. And b- across the board, male and female, I've regretted that I hooked up with a partner. I wish that I had not gone as far sexually. I felt ashamed after hooking up. I felt embarrassed. I felt that I had been taken advantage of. I felt pressured. I had judged or labeled negatively because of a hookup. I contracted a sexually transmitted disease because of a hookup. I mean, this is commonplace now. And so maybe the end of hookup culture is one of the most beneficial results of the end of Roe v. Wade. So women can reclaim their sacredness as, God, as, as daughters of the divine. The Song of Solomon chapter 2 verse 7 says, I adjure you, daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. In other words, save yourself for marriage. Save yourself for the man who's willing to work for you, sweat for you, earn a living and pr- provide for you, and then say in front of friends, family, and a priest or pastor, I'm sticking with you till death to us part. Amen and amen. Maybe our self-esteem levels will come back up. Maybe our anxiety levels will come down. Maybe our depression levels will come down. If we eradicate once and for all this fornication infatuation in our culture that's the good news now to a more personal story i want to talk to you on the heels of this terrible vicious atrocity in buffalo about a modern day missionary you know when tragedies like buffalo happen everybody wants to know what the shooter was all about everybody wants to know their name see a picture of them find out their story but I want to do something different. I want to talk to you about a victim. And the victim's name is Pearl Young. Pearl Young was one of the 10 people shot down in cold blood this past weekend. And this is from buffalonews.com. Pearl was born in Alabama in 1967. She moved to Buffalo. And she was a Christian. She was a devout Christian. She didn't just go to church. She put her faith into action. She um, helped start a soup kitchen in the church. She fed Uh, homeless people for 25 years in the church. Even if it was nothing but soup and bread, whatever she could do, she would just avail herself to help people. She was noted for her life full of giving, her brother-in-law said. In all aspects, she was a missionary. She was a licensed missionary in the denomination. She did not only do speaking engagements, she was involved in different things to help humanity. That was her goal in life. This is all from her brother-in-law. Whether whether she could do more to help, whatever she could do to help someone, she did it. At church, she taught Sunday school. She led youth groups. She cooked big pots of vegetable soup and told people to come and get some. She was always baking cookies, baking cakes, doing stuff like that, cooking spaghetti. She just loved people. She was a, a, veteran, uh, a veteran substitute teacher for the public uh, schools in Buffalo, most recently as a full-time substitute at Burgard High School. She was always full of joy. Her sister-in-law, Doris Page, said, I don't think I ever saw her mad. After worship service on Saturday, and that's this past weekend, 
Pearl's sister dropped her off at Topps Grocery. She was going to get a few things and walk home. And that was the end of her life. And can I tell you that atheists and agnostics have no answer for the end of Pearl's death, for the end of Pearl's life. They have no response that is of value. But friends, God's word does. Because God's word tells me this. One nanosecond after Pearl heard that gunshot, she heard the voice of Jesus. Welcome home. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's the answers to the life's deepest questions that the Bible provides. Philippians 1.21 reminds us, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And my desire is to depart and be with Christ. That is far better. You know what Pearl's doing right now in heaven? She is celebrating, rejoicing, enjoying the presence of the Jesus she served and loved for 60 plus years. And that, my friends, is how you find God's goodness in the face of the devil's evil. That's what he's been doing. That's what he's been doing since Genesis chapter 3, guys. He has been taking mankind's hideous wretchedness and turning it for his good. And I, I encourage you, if you need God's goodness, turn to him. He'll give it to you. This is a dark world, but there are lights shining everywhere. There is hope everywhere if you turn to Jesus. Guys, if you can support the channel, that would be so appreciative. Uh, appreciated, sorry. Uh, the cash tag, Tim Ash Live, timhashlive.com slash support. We're looking for monthly support. If you can sign up 20, 15, 5, 10 dollars a month to help us advertise and get this message out farther than ever before, that would be appreciated. And again, I will be back for the deep dive tomorrow night. Check us out once again here at youtube.com slash Tim Hatch Live. It has been an absolute pleasure to be with you. Uh, let me know in the comments what you thought. Give me a thumbs up. God bless you. Have a good night. See you tomorrow.